Good morning. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Nehemiah 13, the 17th verse. Choir resumes today at 5 o'clock. Then we'll be continuing our series on the life of Samson at 6, finger foods as, as usual. The new Sunday school class for 7 through 9 begins today. I take it it began today. Yes, I didn't, I don't know. Yes, it did. Okay. So that's, uh, that's off and running. Um, that's upstairs in the library, 930. New acts and facts are here along with the uh, Free Grace broadcaster. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7, Andrea's number. Thank you for being faithful in your giving. And thanks again to the deacons. The building is beautiful. Deacons and deaconess. Thank you, Pam. Also thanks to the Armstrongs for the beautiful buffet in the foyer. Congratulations to Charles and Jerry Rathka on their 70th wedding anniversary. Amen. <laughs> Amen. 70 years. We're about halfway there. <laughs> what else? Have I missed anything else? I'll direct you then to the scripture for meditation. Uh, there's a giant note here. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let me let me do that first. <laughs> I don't know why I had to ask that question. Come join us for pizza and trivia, Friday, November the eighth, uh, here at the church. That starts at six, goes through eight thirty. Bring your own snacks and soda to share. Three dollars. Per person for pizza. Sign up on the gather board, formerly helps board in the foyer. So, again, it's on the it's on the, the uh, sign up sheets on the help, uh, helps board or gather board, and that's Friday, November the eighth. All right, now let's look at scripture for meditation. Matthew's Gospel, chapter twelve, read one through fourteen.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless our service. Bill. Take your red Trinity hymnal and turn to number 167, 167 in the red. Oh, 
I had someone come to me right before service and asked for a hymn. Um, Jolene was the person, but she told me the hymn, but I, yeah, I don't remember it all. 338 in the red. And you picked this because you told me that too, but. All right, 338 in the red.
scripture reading this morning from Nehemiah, chapter 13. We'll be reading 15 through 22. That's 773 in the Pew Bible. Stand with us as we read. In those days, I saw Judah... I saw in Judah people treating wine press, treading wide presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did, did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and give orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load may be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this in favor of O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Amen. Will you take your Trinity hymnal again and turn to number 389, 389 in the red. <clears throat>
Our scripture text this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 13. In our last study of Nehemiah, we had a lesson on trustworthy men. We saw how Eliashib, the high priest, was a good man who did a bad thing. The bad thing was that he set up an apartment for Tobiah, his relative, in the courts of the temple. Tobiah was an Arab. He was an enemy of God. But he was a relative. He was a relative through marriage, and so... Eliashib was preferring him above God. We learn that God's ministers can do bad things at times when we get our priorities messed up. With Tobiah occupying the temple storerooms, guess what? Well, the tithe, the offerings, they, they stopped, the people stopped bringing them. Why did they stop bringing them? There was no place to put them. Remember, the tithe was not money. It was grains and produce and things of that nature that came in to support uh, the Levites. Well, the rooms were filled with Tobiah (laughs) and his furnishings until uh, Nehemiah came along and threw all of his furniture out on the front lawn, you might say, and kicked him out, something that should never have had to happen in in the first place. We drew out a number of lessons for leaders. God Good men can do evil things at times. We need to know that. Leaders of the church need to take their roles very seriously. We need the prayers of God's people. Keep on the path straight. For lay people, you have no right to follow the bad example of good leaders who do a bad thing. And if you do, guess what? You're culpable before God for your own ruin. You can't say, well, I was just following the pastor. Sin of leaders and the sin of the people is reversible. We learn when trustworthy men can be found to turn things around. You don't need a massive revival of hundreds and hundreds of people to turn things around. You only need a few. You only need two. You only need you. And God will work through that. Well, we come today to another reform which Nehemiah initiated, a reform concerning the Sabbath and how the people were utilizing that day. So as we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Father, we thank you that the word of God speaks to every issue that faces us in life. We're studying in the Old Testament, but it has much to say about our life in the New Testament. I pray that you will help us today. Help us to see what is relevant and what isn't. I pray, Lord, that you will give us your wisdom. I pray, too, that you will give us an obedient heart. What good is it to learn and to know what we're supposed to do and then we don't do it? That just makes us more culpable, more guilty. With greater light comes greater condemnation. So I pray that you will help us to see that we must be doers of the word, not just hearers only. And as we are doers, we bring glory to your name, in which name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. 
read a text in Nehemiah that deals with Sabbath reforms. The first thing I want to point out is that there is a problem of the world and the worship of God. I suspect you know that, but it needs to be said. As Nehemiah observed the day-to-day operations of his province, he took notice of something. He noticed that the men in Judah, that is the Israelites, were treading the winepress on the Sabbath day, verse 15, loading up wagons with grain, wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of wares, and bringing these things into Jerusalem on the Sabbath to sell them. When we had the lesson on vows or promises made to God from chapter 10, the Israelites made this promise to God. Let me read it for you. When the neighboring peoples bring, this is the Israelites speaking now, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise of grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Chapter 10, verse 31. That's their evaluation. Well, the neighboring peoples were doing this very thing because look at verse 16. It says, men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. Wow. What happened to their vow to God? What happened to their own sense of worship on the Lord's day when they were doing the same kind of buying and selling as the Tyranians were doing? Well, obviously, they had ignored their promise to God for the idea of making money. Well, got to make money. You know, the love of money can do a lot of harm to people. Judas portrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And Paul told Timothy, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. What did Nehemiah do about this? Well, verse 15, he warned them against selling food on that day. He warned them. Secondly, verse 17, he rebuked the nobles of Judah. In that rebuke, he reminded them that the judgment of God had come upon Jerusalem in the past for such breaking of the law of God. And now with these new infractions, the city was once again under jeopardy of the judgment of God. Verse 18. In other words, do you know what you're doing? You're just asking for God to come in and judge you all over again. I think rebuke is good. Rebuke is what? It's, it's a corrective word. It's the necessary word. It's the appropriate word spoken, Paul says, in due season. We ought to be people who can see through an issue and have something to say which addresses the situation from a godly perspective. 
Nehemiah's rebuke was not an airing of his own opinions, but instead a careful reminder of a little bit of Israel's history, which they had conveniently forgotten. May I say that those who ignore the mistakes of history are bound to repeat them. You've heard that said before. Israel was posturing itself through its desecration of the Sabbath to a head-on collision with God. And Nehemiah warned them <coughs> excuse me, of this dangerous move. But Nehemiah also did something else. Verse 19 and following indicates that as Friday ended and the Sabbath was about to begin, Nehemiah ordered the city gates to be closed until the Sabbath was over. He then posted some of his own personal guards to assure that his orders would not be violated. This worked pretty well, except for some diehard merchants who still came to Jerusalem, and when they could not gain access, they camped by the outer wall awaiting the dawn of the first day of the week, verse 20. Oh, we'll, do, we'll just camp right outside the door here, and when the door is open on uh, the first day of the week, we'll rush in and sell our wares. Well, Nehemiah went to them personally, and he warned them that if they did it again, he would lay hands on them, verse 21, which was not a bestowing of blessings like the laying of their hands that we see in the New Testament. He meant, I'm going to slap you in prison, or I'm going to flog you, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get through to you. You are not to show up at the city gates on the Sabbath day with your wares. And you know, as the governor, Nehemiah was not making idle threats. He had the authority from King Artaxerxes to apprehend these merchants and to punish them as he saw fit. Pretty straightforward and rather <clears throat> bold approach to what was happening on the Sabbath. Now, what are we to think about all of this? <clears throat> I mean, ask the question of ourselves. Are we Sabbatarians endeavoring to reinstitute the Jewish Sabbath day? Regulations of no work, no cooking, restricted travel, and the like, all which was part of their law. I should tell you that there is a whole section of Christendom which is dedicated to this very thing. That is, they have returned to, or they think they have returned to, the regulations of the law of Moses. They demand of themselves, their families, a certain code of conduct, which greatly parallels, if not duplicates, the Sabbath day restrictions of Israel. Such people confine their Sunday activities to worship, reading of the scriptures, prayer, meditation, and the like. Nothing bad about that. That's wonderful. Some will not allow their wives to cook on that day. They won't allow their children to engage in any kind of play. Their animals are tethered for the day. And they will not do any manual labor themselves on 
that day. Okay, they have the conscience that they want to do that. But what I have discovered is that no two Sabbatarians observe the Lord's Day in the same way. Which ought to make us highly suspicious of any claims that what such people are doing is found in the Bible. I mean, you can be sure no Israelite was free to choose for himself or herself how the Sabbath was to be observed in the Old Testament. We see in our text that Nehemiah is operating from a definite knowledge as to what the Sabbath regulations involved, and he was committed to bring, get it now, here's the word, he was committed to bring conformity. You are not going to do your own thing on the Sabbath day. You are going to conform. He didn't take a vote. He didn't gather a consensus from the people. He simply forced the people to comply with what he knew was written in the law of God. The nonconformists were rebuked and warned that they jeopardized their own freedom and personal health if they violated the Sabbath regulations again. Verse 21. Now some have argued that the Sabbath rest is a creation ordinance. Existence since the days of creation on the seventh day where God blessed ceased from his labors and on the seventh day rested, blessed the day and made it holy. Genesis 2 verse 2. But uh, Dr. John Gill, the great Baptist theologian, brings out some very interesting observations in that. Number one, Gill points out that the human author of Genesis was Moses, who was writing at a time, Exodus 20 verse 8, if you want the verse, after the Jewish Sabbath had been established by the Decalogue. So the statements in Genesis about God blessing the seventh day and making it holy are parenthetical, which means it was appropriate to Moses' thought because in his day such a Sabbath rest had been established by the law. And Moses inserts the concept here because... It is what the day was to become for the Jews, which was uppermost in his thoughts. As to the actual historical time of Eden, when Adam and Eve were around, such a Sabbath rest was never commanded for them. It is simply a statement of something God did at the end of his creative work. What is more, the seventh day of rest for God is totally unknown. We don't know when that was. No one knows if it was the seventh day of our calendar, which would be Saturday, or some other calculating system. What we do know, however, is that God's seventh day of rest could not have been identical to Adam's seventh day of rest, If he had one, 
Adam was created on the sixth day of creation, whereas God rested on the next day, the seventh. But the seventh day for God was the first day for Adam. Think about that. The rule of the Decalogue was this. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. The seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord. Exodus 20, verse 8. Now Adam as yet had not done one day's work. The toil and labor of his work was to follow after the fall. So, simply put, the Sabbath was not a suitable regulation for a man in innocence like Adam. The labor to come, the obtaining of a livelihood by one's, the sweat of one's face was the result of man's disobedience. Adam had no servants, no cattle, nor any other work, animals, groaning under the state of labor, thereby needing a day of rest. He didn't have any of that. The Sabbath regulation to come under the Jewish theocracy was a regulation specifically appropriate for sinful men. Jesus put it this way, Mark 2, verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We should also note that none of the patriarchs following Adam observed a Sabbath day of rest. Not Enoch, not Noah, not Job, not Abraham, the father of all believers, not Isaac, not Jacob, none of them. You can read it for you in your history. The sins of the old world, both before and after the flood, are duly recorded in the Bible, but nothing is ever said of a people being guilty of breaking or defiling the Sabbath. In fact, there is no, not so much as a mention of the Sabbath until after the gracious outpouring of the manna by which God sustained his people in the wilderness wanderings. And you remember the regulations concerning the manna that every day they were to gather only what they needed for that particular day. And as the sun grew hot in the day, anything that was excess melted away. Exodus 16 verse 21. So God was saying, you're not going to gather any more than what I'm telling you. And then on the sixth day, something strange occurred. There was so much manna on the ground that the people were able to gather twice as much as usual. And the leaders of Israel came and reported this new thing to Moses. Verse 22. It was then that Moses explained that the next day was to be a Sabbath rest for the Lord. And that is why they could gather twice as much that they needed. So they had no gathering to do on the Sabbath, Exodus 16, verse 23. So it's evident that up until that point, no Sabbath had been observed. Moses was giving the new ordinance and the reason for it, and the reason why God had supplied double the manna on that particular 
sixth day. And then a month later, a month later, the Sabbath day regulation was incorporated into the Ten Commandments a month later. Okay, so we ask the question, why was the Sabbath included in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments? Why was it put in there? It could not have been because of it being a moral law, like do not commit adultery. It doesn't fall into that category. Or do not bear false witness against one's neighbor. Don't lie. Because if it were, if it were now a moral law, it would be binding on all people in all countries, in all parts of the world, in all ages just like every other moral law that's in the Ten Commandments. But Christ himself expressly excludes the fourth commandment as binding upon his church. You can read about that in Matthew 19, verse 18, and Mark 12, verse 29 and following. You'll see it's not there when Jesus reiterates the Ten Commandments. Okay. What was it then that made the Sabbath regulation a stipulation on Israel and not upon the Gentile nations? Well, Moses tells us. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 2 and 3, he writes, The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Oreb. Oreb's just another name for Mount Sinai. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Oreb. And what follows is a list of the Ten Commandments. And then in Exodus 31, verse 12, he writes, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Verse 16, The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it, for the generations to come as a lasting covenant, end quote. It's Israelites, Israelites, Israelites that's being addressed. So the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, is part of the Ten Commandments because it was the sign of the covenant that God made with his people that day. Deuteronomy 5 verse 15 tells us, why the Sabbath applied to Israel and not to any other nation. Let me read it for you. Remember, God says, you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Do you know that in Nehemiah 9 verse 13 of our text is saying essentially the same thing. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made them known you made known to them your holy sabbath and gave them commands and decrees and laws through your holy servant Moses. 
In other words, Israel received the command on Sabbath as a sign of the covenant of God that he had made with them in bringing them out of the forced labor of Egyptian bondage to the peace and rest which only God could and had obtained for them. The Sabbath rest. This is why they were forbidden to work on the Sabbath or to do anything that might give the hint of labor or industry. Why? Well, they had built cities for the pharaohs. They had made their bricks that were used to build those cities uh, without straw, you remember that. Their whole life was one of back-breaking, arduous work just to stay alive. They were enslaved to work, 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 work that consumed their waking hours. They were captives. They were slaves. Yet none of their labor set them free. God had to set them free. The Sabbath rest was a sign of their rest secured by God alone. That is why the Sabbath applies to no other nation. This is why none but Israel was ever charged with the sin of breaking the Sabbath. This is why in the new covenant established in Christ's blood and based upon better promises containing nothing of a Sabbath day regulation, that old covenant along with the sign of the covenant, the Sabbath, is gone. And Hebrews 8 says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It is not to be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them out of the, out by hand and led them out of Egypt. There it is again, that release from captivity. Because they did not remain faithful to that covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. In other words, these things will become a part of their nature. I'm still reading scripture. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Hebrews 8, verse 8 and following. Brethren, the great lesson for us today is that Christ has become our Sabbath rest. And so it is in him that we cease from our labors. The writer of Hebrews speaks of a number of different rests which came to the people of Israel. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews Hebrews chapter 4, I'm going to read it. It's a lengthy lengthy passage, but I'm going to read it anyway. Hebrews 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, 
Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all of his work. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that none will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it generates even to dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Here is a marvelous text which demonstrates the spiritual significance of the Sabbath rest. When Moses led the older generation of Israelites who had come out of Egypt to the doors of Canaan, the promised land, they balked in unbelief. You remember that. Verse 2. Also disobedience. Verse 6. Unbelief, disobedience. The land which was to become their place of rest never materialized. Instead, God turned them back, didn't he, into the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years until they all perished from old age, that generation. When Joshua led the younger generation into Canaan, you might be tempted to assume that Israel had now entered its rest. But that cannot be. For long after Joshua, God spoke through David of another rest, saying, Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. Psalm 95, verse 8. Well, if David talks about responding to the invitation of God as today, then Joshua's rest was incomplete, right? There's another rest. It wasn't Joshua's wasn't Moses. 
Another rest. The only logical conclusion, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. So what is God's rest? What does it consist of? Verse 2. We also had the gospel preached to us as they did, but the message they heard was of no value because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now, we who have believed enter that rest. Verse 6. It still remains that some will enter that rest. Rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in. So, clearly, the rest which God has promised is spelled out in what this writer calls the gospel. And it's found in the exercise of faith as opposed to the unbelief of the Israelites of old. Well, what's the gospel? Verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. You know, all that the world offers in terms of life and happiness has to do with work, not faith. Work, 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 work. That's all we hear. By the way, that's why the merchant showed up at Jerusalem's wall in the days of Nehemiah. Got to make a living. Got to make money. No time to waste. Work, work, work. Got to work towards my retirement. No one's going to give me anything. If I plan to have some day in the future taken care of, I got to work and earn and save now. People talk like that all the time, don't they? I've never heard a retiree from General Motors say, Oh, it was so gracious of GM to give me this retirement program. I cannot tell you how happy I am over the generosity of the company. No one talks like that. Instead, they say, Hey, I want you to know, I earned every penny of my retirement. The company gave me nothing. So people see the rest they now enjoy as the fruit of their own labor. And this mentality is brought over into the spiritual realm as well. But God says, you'll never enter heaven's rest that way. Israel came to the doors of Canaan and they saw the giants in the land and the fortified cities and they said, we're never going to be able to get past these obstacles. These people are too mighty. They are too powerful. We're not strong enough to defeat them. What was their problem? They were looking at the work it would take And they didn't see any rest in the project. And God came along and God said in effect, you don't have to worry about the giants. 
You don't have to concern yourself about the fortified cities. I'm going to give them to you on a silver platter. Platter. All you have to do is believe. And the scripture says in unbelief, in unbelief, they turned away from God and failed to enter into his rest. There may be some here this morning who, whose idea of heaven's rest is something you expect to earn through your own labors. Let me tell you, you'll never get past the giants of sin which overpower you and the fortified cities of stubbornness which keep you from surrendering to Christ. You'll never get past it. But today, the scripture says, today if you hear God's voice, there's hope for you. Because God is saying, there's another way. It's the only way. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the gospel. And you will enter into God's rest on Jesus' merit alone. His righteousness will be put on your account. So that when God looks at you and by your faith in Christ, he'll see the merit that Christ has earned. But he says today if you hear God's voice. Today. Jesus is the great high priest who is able to make atonement for your sin and my sin. Shedding his own blood in our place. The writer of Hebrews says he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4 verse 15. He knows You cannot slay the giants. He knows you cannot storm the fortified cities. But he can. He can. And he does for all who will trust in him. The reforms that Nehemiah initiated concerning the people of of his charge called upon them to rethink their understanding and practice concerning the Lord's Sabbath. Sabbath rest is from God. And the gospel calls on us to rethink how men enter the eternal rest of God. Nehemiah knew the mercy and the great love of God, verse 22. Do you know that? That's how we enter into God's rest, because of his mercy and his grace. And we believe He means it for us, personally, individually. May the Lord grant you that kind of faith. That's how you're going to get through the gates into the holy city. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. and Thank you that you've done it all. You're not asking us to be in partnership with you. You're not asking us to do our part. gain the rest of God no you've secured it all through the blood of your son you've just charged us to believe it can we believe it can we believe as 
Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. There's nothing else to be added to it. Not our prayers, not our money giving, not our faithfulness to the church. There's nothing to be added to what Christ has done for us. We're simply to believe and obey. Grant us that faith. We don't have that faith, Lord. We're so stubborn. We're so proud of our achievements. We think we can do it. Just tell us what to do, we say to you. Just tell us what to do, God. We'll do it. We can't do it. Only Christ could do it, and him, him because of his perfection. Perfect son of God. Perfectly obeying the law. Not ever once, not ever once sinning. And so we have the sinless, perfect sacrifice so that he can take on our sins. His righteousness applied to us. How wonderful is that? If we will believe. Lord, grant us that faith to reach out and grab hold of Jesus and never let him go. Amen. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal. Number 441. Four four one. Let's stand together.
There's none good but God, Jesus said. There's none holy but God. But we may enter into his holiness through faith. So I trust that we will do that. Trust in Christ to be our righteousness and our holiness. Okay, I remind you that tonight at 5 o'clock is choir right here. You say, do I have to audition? No. Do you like to sing? Yes. Come on out. We are probably getting ready for some holiday numbers and that. So that will be tonight at 5 o'clock. And then afterwards, 6 o'clock, finger foods downstairs and the study of Samson, the video series. We are dismissed. Thank you.